0: We're in the book of James, um, and we're calling this sermon series Strange Community because if, if, we, if we hear James through the lens of, of the wisdom literature that it is, and if the church lives this stuff out, then we're going to be really strange to the world around us. And also at the same time, uh, as residents of the world around us that are shaped by the world around us, there's a lot of things that James says that are also really strange to us. Whether you're a Christian or not, or how long you've been a Christian, man, this, some of this stuff is, is packing a punch. And so, uh, this morning is no exception, and so let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and then we will dive right in. All right, James says this, "'Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Lord, it is remarkable to read something that was written 2,000 years ago, as if, knowing that, it, that it, is, it is a hyperbole for the sake of illustration, and yet, Lord, in, in the age of social media, in the age of virality, this is actually, seems accurate, <laughs> not hyperbole. Um, Lord, it's also blunt. I pray that in the, the bigness and the heaviness and the bluntness of, of what James is saying here, we would be able to see the significant grace and the love that saturates and fuels and drives and drives us in an even greater proportion and in greater degree. Lord, guide us as we dive into and dig into your word and help us to trust that it is sufficient for all things related to our salvation, to our redemption. Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen. So, Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it, does does James do this? Um, No pressure either. I mean, there's just this is such black and white language, and it's even stronger than the language that he's been using in James so far. In part because this is not just a major theme in the book of James, but this passage is the absolute center of the book of James. If you know what a chiasm is, it's it's kind of like a poetic structure that thematically kind of goes in and builds up to a main point and then backs its way back out um, through similar points but kind of resolving the tension that's created in it. And this is the center of the chiasm in James, this passage. It's also not just most central, it's probably the strangest part because we have some really profound cultural assumptions around words and how we use words, especially as mere self-expression, as I mentioned earlier this morning already, that make this particularly strange and difficult for us to wrestle with. So we're going to jump in, and um, but I want to kind of introduce three filters or three, I don't know, um, emphases or highlights that I want you to be listening for and also to hear everything that is said through, okay? The first is this. As it said in the very beginning, not many of you should become teachers James has teachers especially in mind here, right? He says, we, for you know that we who teach, right? He's including himself in it. And he is absolutely talking about teachers, but not only, right? Because he ends the passage going back to how he introduced the letter and talking about dear brothers, my brothers, these things ought not be so. He is talking to the whole church as well, okay? That's number one. Number two is this. It's very easy to see and hear this through the lens of like how I think about my speech or my words and how I steward them in terms of me individually and my responsibility there. But I don't think this is at all an overstatement. We have a cataclysmic blind spot in how we understand the power of words in community. That this is not just an individual exhortation that James is giving. He's actually talking to an entire community at the same time as its own and a distinct entity and not just the sum of the individuals who are members of it, if that makes sense. Right? The fact that I even need to uh, say that and articulate that is is something that's very unique to us as modern Westerners. This is not something that James would have ever felt the need to to differentiate um, because individual and communal are tied together, right? And then lastly, and this is where we're gonna start, is that in a very counterintuitive way, words are actually far more powerful than we give them credit for. Like we actually think as a culture, we have, we have a high value of words, right? We, we, we wanna speak our truth. We, we are constantly saying things and tr- trying to raise awareness through the communication of information. We wouldn't be an information saturated society, oversaturated society if we didn't value words and yet we still actually undervalue them. So that's where we're going to start, is, is this powerful responsibility to bless that, that James articulates in these first two verses, right? Now, if you've, been, if you've been here for the sermon series, you know that in James 2, the focus was really on, on exhorting those who were in the church who, you know, maybe they had the right words, but they were they had the wrong actions. Like they were saying with their, li- the, their lips, like, I believe in Jesus, but not demonstrating it with their lives. So it was the right words, but careless actions. James 3 is, is really, that was actually to set this up in a lot of ways, which is, okay, maybe you have right action, but now we need to talk about careless words. And what unifies... The, the words and actions and makes them right is this posture that I know I've used this, this word before of, of stewardship, of seeing our words as things that are gifts given to us that we then steward, not just use, but steward. So whenever you hear the word stewardship this morning, here's how I want you to hear it defined as, right? It is the, the faithful and careful, not careful, like trying to, like not cautious, but full of care, careful, Use of what doesn't belong to us, according to the purpose of the one who entrusted it to us. Let me say that again: the faithful and careful use of what doesn't belong to us, according to the purpose of the one who entrusted it to us. Okay. In other words, responsibility. You know, it's interesting. We're we're a culture that's very much obsessed with words, but all of the like so much of the jargon. I don't want to say all because I'm sure somebody could find an exception. Uh, but it feels like the vast majority of the jargon that we use around words seem to be focused on uh, or, or trying to avoid respo- our responsibility to them, right? I, I said, uh, you know, speaking our truth, like we're just speaking our truth. As this is my truth, like, it, it, it shouldn't have the impact or the effect that it, it may or may not. This is just my opinion, right? We say, just saying. I mean, that's my favorite, personally. Um, sorry, not sorry, Oh yeah, that one—that one cuts deep, right? Um, there, there are so many different like little phrases and jargons that we use. That—that's the common denominator. And, and when you see that, it's—it's it's actually like, I'm sorry, not sorry to say that, because now you're gonna hear and realize, like, oh man, don't judge. Oh, uh, okay. We avoid responsibility. Words are so much more powerful than we think. God as creator, spoke all of creation into existence, right? It says he spoke, he, he, let there be light, and then there was light. And the, even the distinction between God's words and their effect is almost artificial because as soon as God speaks something into reality, that reality has become already the thing he speaks. This is something theologians call uh, called God's speech acts, is when he says something to be true, it becomes true at the moment that he says it. Another way of kind of articulating this is that the the gap uh, between God's words and his deeds is infinitely and utterly zero. I don't think that's undefined. If you're a math person, you can tell me if I'm using that correctly. It's just zero. There is no distinction, right? We bear his image, James even reminds us of that later in the passage. He says, we say curses, and we curse those who bear the likeness of God. This is the language of the Imago Dei, saying that something about, all, about humanity, that it is unique in all of creation, that sets us apart from the animals, and that is that we bear God's image. Well, what does that mean? What well, it means that we are stewards called to cultivate out of what God has created. Okay? I just summarized like, the entire creational theology of Genesis 1 and 2, and I can't believe I'm not going to go on a tangent for that because there's so much good there. But this includes our words. Our words are something we steward. It's actually the thing that God does to make creation. And so there are few things more important for us to steward than our words. Right? When it says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, fill the earth and subdue it, this is what it means to be the... Uh, to bear the image of God and to be human. It means that we are to be catalysts for teeming, for the teeming of life and the ordering of life, the, uh, the giving structure to it. Like it's a garden, not a wild open space, right? We're to cultivate, to flourish. And words are the catalysts that are intended to multiply and edify, to cultivate and to connect, right? The, the animal kingdom may be able to communicate with each other but only image bearers actually affect reality with our words. Let me give you an example of this, positively speaking, right? Um, I brought this morning with me a, uh, I call this my my good news stash. Um, And uh, by that I mean like when I am feeling like the fall is particularly potent and I'm struggling against the thorns and the thistles of the curse and everything, and I'm just like discouraged and just need some encouragement, I break out the stash and reread, these notes and these things that are, have been profoundly affect, effective and encouraging to me. It includes like a, a letter from a mentor and a pastor who's advocating for me um, around something. It includes the autograph of uh, Dustin Kensrew, um the lead singer of Thrice. It's very important. It, okay, let me, I should explain this. It's not just the autograph that's important. It's the moment that I got it from him, I was also able to thank him for a letter he wrote, because at the time he was the worship pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, and he wrote this incredibly beautiful pastoral letter to, his, to the church in the, at the beginning of the implosion that happened there around spiritual abuse and Mark Driscoll, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was able to thank him because that gave me significant encouragement and was, was a, a pointer to gospel love and truth when I needed to hear it, right? So um, there's a lot of, in here, but I want to read one of them in particular to you um, it better be here. Okay. Whew. Okay. That was real close. All right. Um, this is from a friend. His name is Mark Grappengader. He's actually preached here a couple times. He's. I asked him for permission to use the name the table when we named this church in part because it was actually his idea originally, and now he has since come and is planting the table in Denver. Um, he wrote this letter. It's dated 16 March 2012. And he, in giving me this letter, he also gave me my first fountain pen, uh, which, if you know me, I might have a love of fountain pens. And the occasion for it was our moving away from St. Louis to take my first role as a pastor uh, in Westminster, Rocky Mountain Prez. And this is what he wrote in here. He says, They say that the pen is more powerful than the sword, but what happens when that sword is the word of God, that which is sharper than any double-edged sword, that which can divide bone from marrow, my guess is that in the right preacher's hands, that pen would be an amazing force that God would wield to shape not only the lives of its hearers, but also the heart of the man he has called to care for and comfort his flock. May this pen do just that. You're a great friend, and I miss you already. May the ink always remind you of the great confluence of grace you have been in my life. Grace and peace and love, Mark. Now, that is, pers- that is profoundly powerful to me. He stewarded a responsibility to bless in ways that I am, I still have. Like, this was the very first... This started this, the gospel stash, the good news stash for me. And it's powerful because he stewarded his words... But he also, as you may have noticed, he paraphrased Scripture and brought his words into alignment with what Scripture says. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Words have very real power. God's word, in Isaiah 55, he says, it says God's word will not return void. It will affect change. It will transform. It will change reality itself. This is why preaching, and what we do here every Sunday morning, this is far more than the dissemination of information. This is far more than you learning it and me communicating. This is not just education. It's, it's something far more. I was reminded of this actually last week. Um, somebody, I'm not sure which of you asked as a volunteer, would it be okay if we had communion up in Table Kids? And by the way, that's an awesome question. Like, like yeah, I mean, if there's any, anyone that we can give communion that we otherwise um, are not, like, absolutely, like, this is beautiful. We ended up saying no, but it's only because the way that we theologically understand the relationship between the Word of God and the Last Supper is that the Last Supper, if it's not for, if, if not for the Word of God and, the, the, and, and Jesus, who is the Word of God, if not for that, then that's just a snack. That's not a sacrament. It's a snack. And it's actually the pairing of the preaching of the Word with communion that makes it part of being a sacrament because it's done according to God's love and God's purposes, stewardship, right? This is why James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. No pressure. That's as it should be. When you're wielding something as powerful as the word of God, you should be judged to greater strictness and held accountable. Because if it's not stewarded well, according to God's heart and God's purposes, then what are we even doing here, number one? And number two, it has capacity to affect a significant damage to people. Right? It's one thing for our words to implicitly align with God's, and it's another if we actually claim that they explicitly represent him. And they they better explicitly represent him if we're claiming that. Now that said, right immediately following verse one, uh, it says, "It says this: for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body." It's kind of weird the way he frames it, but he's kind of saying, in a sense that, and I'm going to use another phrase that we use to avoid responsibility, but that's not how it's being used here, right? He's saying basically nobody's perfect, (laughs) right? But what he's saying here is actually like, don't worry. Mercy triumphs judgment, as he said in chapter 2. Judged with greater strictness is still met with an even greater mercy. That's not meant to to take away from anything or the the responsibility. It's actually meant to free it. That's what James is leading with. And this is why it can't just be teachers that he's applying this to, because we need that grace for the rest of everything else he says. Okay? Okay? So let's, let's take a look at this. Okay, so if the first, my first of three points is the powerful responsibility to bless. The second is the tempting power to curse. Let me reread verses 9 through 10 to refresh our memories here. James says, With it, speech, words, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing is the origin of the phrase, you kiss your mother with that mouth. Like it's it's pointing out the, the extreme contradiction of source and the heart that comes from the words, and also the way that we use the thing that we have been given, which is our mouths, our tongues, our words, our speech, the Imago Day we bear, all of that. There is this contradiction. And just like any other gift from God, and often in proportion to its potency of that gift. Words that are intended to bless and encourage and edify and build up can be misused to curse, to deceive like the snake did in Eden, to diminish and dehumanize, and yes, to even avoid responsibility like Adam did in the Garden of Eden and blaming his wife, because that's never happened again, right? The same spark that set souls on fire and left hearts warmed by grace after Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the same words can also set ablaze a forest and leave fresh death in their wake instead of new life. When he's using, when James is using the the flame analogy, he's actually appealing to an experience his audience would have had a direct experience of. So the people he's writing to would have been there for Pentecost, the vast majority of them. They would have seen the fire of God's word spread and transform and create a new creation. And so when James is using this, he's communicating to them who know the firsthand power of words to bless and to redeem and to save that, hey, you guys, you're flirting with a destruction where you're flirting with the destruction of God's strange community in equal and opposite to its creation. He's saying words stewarded poorly can undo the thing that God did on Pentecost. If that doesn't stop you in your tracks, I don't know what does. If there's, not, there's nothing else that could, that could help us to see we don't actually value the potency of words enough. Right? This is why, it, the fir- I think it was the first or second sermon in James, I said, um, in v- referring to chapter 1, verse 26, I said, we're going to come back to this later, and this is that moment I was talking about when James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This is why he's saying that. Because you're demonstrating by not bridling, actually, you don't, you don't actually believe the thing you claim to believe. And so with this language of unbridling or bridling your tongue when he's pulling it back and coming back to that in chapter 3, he's, act, he's saying that this is, he's using it in a way that, to, to communicate that words are not, the way he's describing it, it is not a case of willful harm. That's not what he's trying to describe with that language. He's trying to describe a careless, non-consideration, an immature, undisciplined quickness of speech that doesn't actively intend to hurt anyone. It's actually worse. It's that you didn't consider anyone at all in either your speech or not speaking. We're too self-centered to bother pausing to ask. Ironically OK, I remember that James's audience is experiencing persecution at the hands of a guy named Saul who becomes Paul. Paul then later says, in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The irony of him saying that is that it was actually through his desire to be faithful and zealously so that he stopped considering others and wanted to speak truth. In other words, speaking truth without love. And he's saying in that moment that that's actually the problem, is I I considered myself more significant than others. That's what's being implied there, and that's the exact audience that James is writing to. <sighs> right? When let me re- reread verses five through eight and dig into this fire analogy because this this is this is this is, this is the consequences of that. Right? James says, "How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness." The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He's really not holding back. Okay, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is where the community piece comes in. right? Because it's not just that words... The words don't just stop at the audience or the people that we're speaking them to. They spread like fire, like, like disease through a body. They stain, and stains bleed into the rest of the fabric through connection. The members are compromised. The connection is compromised. This is far more than the sum of individuals. This is, this is a strange stewardship for a strange community. To, trying to, how, how to nail this and, and, and communicate how important this piece is, is really important. And uh, a friend of mine, his name is Patrick Miller, wrote an article recently uh, called Prince Harry's Spare in the Spirit of the Age. So this is about Prince Harry and Queen Elizabeth. So has anybody read Prince Harry's book by chance? Okay, you can text me later if you don't want to raise your hand. That's okay. I'm just curious, right? Um, so it's his kind of like tell-all autobiography. Yes, it was definitely ghostwritten. Um, but this article that my friend Patrick wrote is, is contrasting Prince Harry with Queen Elizabeth in terms of how they see their role and their relationship with the institution that is the crown. And they could not be more diametrically opposed. And he hits it, the nail on the head of what I'm trying to articulate with this part. this quote from the article. He says, The problem isn't destruction as such or burning as such, right? Some things are worthy of destruction. The problem is we don't share Elizabeth's readiness to die to herself and serve her duty unto the reconstruction of a better reality, the bridling and taming of our tongues. One of the other reasons why this note from mark meant so much to me is that about a year and a half earlier shortly after he moved from chicago to st louis to join the church plant that hannah and i were a part of at the time and and i was a church planting resident of and he was moved to be a part of that um i w- it was at, toward the end of my time at covenant seminary and it took me two years of of job searching to find my first role as a pastor because a lot more people wanted to be pastors back then um, had something to do with it. And, and so it, I can't tell you the kind of pressure and weirdness it, it strained, the way it strained relationships with friends who are other covenant seminary students along with me or other people who are looking for the job because like, we're all trying to apply for the same things. And I will never forget Mark um, one morning when we like, went running, which that tells you how long ago it was. Um, Mark, without any prompt, he said, hey, man, I just want you to know... And I'm not asking you to reciprocate this at all, truly, but I want you to know that if I come across any opportunities I think you'll be interested in or I am applying to, whether I think you're interested in it or not, I'm going to send them your way and let you know so you can also apply to them. And I just want you to like, I just I just want you to know that that's what I'm gonna do. And again, no expectation that you do so. Of course I did so, right? But he really meant it. That was a death to self for the sake of the community that we had and shared and were both members of. And it was that death to self that he was able to, that, that grew and catalyzed growth in him such that he was able to genuinely and actually celebrate that I got a job even though he, it took him months, if not I think over a year later. That is a powerful Stewardship of words. And I think as Christians, what we, we we we're often thinking through the lens of what is faithful to God. Like our, our, our vision statement says, um, like we, we seek to become the embodied hospitality of Jesus for the glory of God and good of neighbor. Right? The glory of God and good of neighbor. I'm I'm actually strongly considering adding a, a, a third thing in between those two. It says the glory of God. The nurturing of the church and the good of neighbor. Because this is something that is assumed in Scripture when it says the, good of God, the glory of God and good of neighbor, but we don't because we think that institutions are terrible and only ever abusive, and that community is something that is, can only and has to be organic. And there's all kinds of that that's wrapped up into, in individualism, right? That I know I have preached on, and I'm starting to get off on a tangent, so I'm going to resist, right? But this question of stewardship is incomprehensible apart from that third dimension. Let me give you an example of this. Um, this, is, this is very cl- uh, top of mind for me because uh, we just had Michael here for an interview weekend. And um, in the interview process, for all staff members at the table, the one question I've always asked every single sta- staff member is, is this, um, this hypothetical, uh, which is, Okay, I want you to imagine, like, after church one Sunday, somebody comes up to you, and they come to you as a staff member and express some kind of criticism or a complaint about another area of ministry that you're not responsible for. Like, it's actually under, let's use, let's say they come to Danny, and they're complaining about Beth, and I'm using that as an analogy because nobody would ever complain about Beth, and that's a really easy one, Okay. You, if, you've, if you're laughing, you've met Beth. You're like, yeah, absolutely. This is incomprehensible also. Um, and let's say you actually agreed with the complaint. They, they delivered it well. It was from a good place. And, and they have this criticism. And you, um, and you agree with it, actually. How do you, what do you do with that? Okay. What I'm trying to ask with this hypothetical situation is Is, is this. Whose responsibility do you see it is to steward those words? And for whom do you steward it? That responsibility. In that moment, you have some responsibility to steward, but whose ultimately or primarily is it to steward it? And for whom do you steward it? Okay? Here's the wrong answer. Um, The wrong answer is is what's called triangling. And you, you say to the person, like, man, thanks for telling me, I'll take care of it. And what that means is, is I'm going to go to that other person and let them know that, hey, hey some people are saying this, and it's really important that you make this change. Well, it's problematic for a lot of reasons, because who, what that assumes is whose responsibility it is to steward is actually the ministry leader that's being talked about, but those aren't his words, and that's, that's problematic. Right. Who is it's being stewarded for is for the sake of the, the congregant, right? Who comes in with the, the criticism of the complaint, valid even if it is, right? It's it's for them, not necessarily the the people who are involved in the ministry that's being criticized. Okay, so that's the wrong answer. For the record, never gotten that answer when asking a question, which is really good. Okay, the most common answer. Is some 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 kind of like kind of telling both people something, right? You tell the the person who's 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 coming with the complaint. You're saying, hey, thank you for this. Um, you know, have you talked to that person? Uh, have you like I would encourage you to please go follow up and, and to talk to them. And that's really good. And that's and and they can hear you. I'm sure they can, etc. But then they'll also go and tell the other person, like, hey, just want to give you a heads up. So and so, or maybe it's anonymous. Like so and so's going to come and you know have this. Critique and it's coming from a good place, right? It's it's a desire to not, for that for that staff member to be not ambushed in a sense, right? And it's coming from a really good place. But here are the questions again, right? Whose responsibility to steward is it? In this view, it says again, it's it's the ministry leader because um, that's being circumvented. And who is it being stewarded for? In that moment, in a sense, oops. In a sense, it's actually for the sake of yourself. Because now you don't have to go follow up with the person with a complaint and ask if they've had the conversation with them. And you don't have to, if they're dragging their heels or like maybe they thought that just telling you was going to solve the problem and now, now that they're being held accountable, it, it's actually, it's for your sake, it's, it's selfish. Okay, here's the right answer, which is shepherding. Which is to say like, hey, maybe even before they're finished, you know, expressing the complaint, can I just check in? Have you talked to this person? Okay, is there any reason why you might not feel comfortable talking to that person besides the obvious? Like, it's not fun to give negative feedback, right? But, like, is there something about the way that that person has responded to you in the past that, like, you're worried about that? How can I help? Can I I maybe, like, help you think about how to frame it in a way that it'll be easier for them to hear? And walk alongside them. And then not go tell the staff member not burden them with a responsibility and a stewardship of words that are not theirs to bear. That's actually taking the responsibility and stewarding well what you've been entrusted with, which is a complaint that's valid and you agree with, and you're bearing that responsibility by helping them bear theirs, bearing with one another in love, right? Now, that's an incredibly granular, nuanced example that I, I, I want to share because I I it really kind of pushes back against what, how we think about responsibility and stewardship. Because what makes the third answer the right one and the best one is because that actually includes all people involved in the nurturing of the church. It's for the good and the edification and the blessing of the congregant with the complaint, with, the, with you yourself, as well as all of the people that are involved in the ministry leaders area of expertise and leadership, right? And the reason why that is important is because words are formative. Okay, this is my last point before we jump into the Q&A. Is the strange gift of careful stewardship. And what happens when not just individuals, but an entire community is oriented around what James is describing here. Let me read verses 3 through first part of 5 again here. Of careful stewardship because we've been talking about it as a responsibility but it is also a gift and that is strange to view for us to view that as a gift because we live in a culture of expressive individualism right we live in a culture where uh that says as carl truman defines this has this modern notion of self that lies at the heart of current cultural conflicts by the way the right and the left and everywhere in between right expressive individualism holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core and that, and this is the important part, the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in, re- in relationships. In other words, to, to, to speak unbridled, to speak without restraint, because it's expression, and anything that challenges it is deemed oppressive. You know what's really, what's really depressing, actually, is that self-expressive individualism is way more oppressive. It's actually really devastating, right? In, in this way, it makes the error and misses something vitally important that words are both more self-expressive than we actually want to admit, and they are more than self-expression than we realize. Imagine, imagine you're a sculptor, right? Words are the tools you use to shape something. You, you use it to shape and to, to carve and and. That makes total sense with everything I've been saying. But what about when you make a mistake? What if one ear is lower than the other and you can't go back, right? What if there's something wrong with it? Well, when I say that words are more, than, more self-expressive than we want to admit, what I mean by is, is when we see them through the, word, the, the lens of achieving our identity, our dignity, value, and worth, then we cannot face them when they reflect not just ourselves, but our sinful selves. We can't face them. We say things like, I'm not the sculptor who did that. Well, actually you are. Y- your words had that effect. right? Like you see this if you're, if you're on social media all the time, like, that did not reflect who I really am. Ah, actually, yeah, it did. It just, you said the quiet part out loud. That actually is who you really are. And I know that it's it's oppressive to consider that because you believe in something that's not the gospel about who you are. You're believing in expressive individualism as a means of getting your dignity, value, and worth instead of receiving it from God, right? That is a graceless, oppressive reality to live in. It's also not true. It's also, words are more than self-expression. You see, I kind of set you up with the analogy of the sculptor because you're not just the sculptor, you're also the statue, right? Your words, as you are speaking them and using them to shape, you are also being shaped by those words at the same time. And if we are operating under self-expression as the primary lens for stewardship and not also stewardship, then we are actually unwittingly and unknowingly deforming ourselves. We are operating in this kind of brokenness feedback loop if we don't understand that it's not actually just for the good of the people who hear your words that we're saying to steward them well, it's also for your good because there are implications and consequences to the way that we steward our words well or not. Right? Again, Paul, this is so incredibly ironic especially since I forgot my Bible. Can you grab me? When Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4, which is, this comes right before the passage that Darren led us off with in the call to worship this morning, so this is all connected and no, Darren and I did not plan that ahead of time. That's just God doing His thing and showing off. He says, he says this, verses 15 through 16, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. It is not from receiving information that we grow up into Christ. It's not from reading another Christian book on the topic that gets you excited again, right? It is actually the speaking of truth with love. It is the bridling of our tongues in the direction of what of God's word that helps us to grow and to be shaped ever more into the image of our head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, mirroring the same language James is using in terms of like members being stained, right? When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love and there's the communal dimension and all God's people said amen. The bridle, the rudder, The taming is actually a gift. It is not just an imperative. It is not just an obligation. It is actually an invitation. It is a beautiful, potent thing that is related to what it means to be made in God's image and to be God's beloved children, to be brothers and sisters in Christ with each other. What I'm saying is this, is when our words match God's word and God's heart, then God grows our hearts to align with his word. When our words match God's word and God's heart, God grows our hearts to align with his. All nouns, all persons, places, and things, both singular and plural, are grown Godward by God's word, both heard and spoken. His word does not return void. It is living and working. And by the way, that means even if I fail to preach this as, as well as I could or should, and if you fail to hear all of it because you are stressed out about all the kinds of things that are burdening you in life, guess what? God's word is still not going to return void. That's, a, that's an incredible gift. It's a grace that frees us that is so much better than expressive individualism, right? Because... Words don't just change the external reality. They can change and shape us too. God's word more powerfully than any other word. It doesn't matter what it is we're comparing it to. Words are more than informative. They're also de- they can be deformative or transformative to the degree that we steward them with truth and love. So I guess what I'm saying is like, right, don't choose your words authentically. Choose them carefully. And in so doing, trust that God is going to make them authentic by changing you to match them. That is a promise that God keeps. Now I know, and this is the absolute very last thing, and it's literally the last line, so there's nothing else after this. How do you do this? Because that feels like a huge responsibility. And that's good if you're feeling that. I want to encourage you that Hebrews is able to say that the, the Word of God is living and active because of John 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, in the beginning, the beginning of the Gospels starts with this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. His speech acts are total and complete and finished. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I want you to hear when Jesus is on the cross and he says it is finished. That is a speech act of God as potent as let there be light. Because in the darkness of the cross, he is declaring something to be true and in so doing makes it true at the same time. There is nothing to express your way into or out of because God has already said from the cross, it is finished. And that is incredible grace that frees us.